So I'm back, Steve. Are you? Uh, well, I mean, did you ever actually get onto US UK time or US time or whatever? Or did you just stay basically as you are? No, I didn't. I, didn't, I mean, not by design. I basically just woke up at two o'clock in the morning every morning and carried on like that for the entire week, which I can tell you is not a sustainable way to live your life. But at least you don't have any jet lag. Well, I'm now sort of trying to, uh, what's the word? I'm trying to sort of placebo my effect, my brain into that. But I don't have, I can't have jet lag because I've stayed on UK time. That's the sort of thing that people say, isn't it? These international travellers. But you essentially haven't had a good night's sleep for the best part of a fortnight. Well, I got back on Tuesday and then I drove straight to Frilford Heath uh, to play in a, a client golf day. I was having dinner with a client um, the evening before. I messaged him to say, don't arrive too early because I'm going to try and get some kit this afternoon. So I went to bed at about four and then he woke me up by knocking on my door at eight o'clock when I was supposed to be having dinner with him. <laughs> uh, you, you, are, you are the, like... I mean, I would say the epitome of like living life at both ends, but there was no booze involved, was there? And there was no carousing. It was basically just 20 hours of work every day. Yeah. So, yeah. My news resolution was to say yes to everything, so I'm sort of delivering on that, I think. Um, anyway, before we get into me, what about these egg sandwiches? I want an egg sandwich update. We haven't had one for a while. I think the last time I heard about your egg sandwich winnings, you'd, had a, you'd won three. Any progress? I've won another. Oh my goodness. Have you ever lost what? one? Have you lost one this year? No, not yet. I, to be honest, this was the first time as well that um, I started to notice some tension on the other side of the room. <laughs> so I was like a couple up after nine. And um, yeah, I got I got the distinct impression that um, for the first time he was getting a bit tired of getting beat off me like it's been like a novelty for for him i think for the first few weeks because obviously i keep saying to him i've been at the club for like 18 19 months and i'd never beaten him he'd beaten me every time he played me and um since uh since a certain arrival into my bag which is obviously the tailor-made stealth 2 driver i've just been a man reborn when it comes so i was he did put up he did put up a bit of a fight actually um i was three up and I had a putt to win it on the 15th, and it hung just on the edge. I mean, just on the edge. And then he won 16 and 17, and I put it in the bunker on 18. So it got a bit squeaky bum time. Um, but um, fort- fortunately for me, I prevailed two up. I think I'm taking some, I might take some blame for that collapse, Steve. So I think I WhatsApped you at exactly that point. You did, you did, yeah. You, you, WhatsApped, you WhatsApped me as I was stood on the 12th tee. And I was two up. I was two up at that point. And you, um, you gave me. I mean, it's not exactly Brian Clough levels of motivation here, but you gave me the words "keep focused." Yeah. It just shows you these golfers who are doing these sort of pieces to camera when they're playing golf. It's not good for your game, is it? I've had um very I've had other exciting news, Tom. Go on. They've arrived. What your new sticks? They have arrived. They took. They I mean, they have arrived. Uh, it took a week. I mean, like I, I was talking to my pro, 
uh, Mark Rogers at York, who said this is basically how long it takes TaylorMade at the moment to deliver golf clubs. It takes a week. So bear in mind that there was a weekend and a bank holiday. It took from the fitting to the arrival seven days, which is incredible. Very impressive, isn't it? That's massively impressive. So what's in the bag now then, or what will be in the bag? So I've got, uh, as we recapped last week, but for those who didn't listen, I'll be very, very quick, because if you did listen this, last week, you don't want to hear me going on about it and on about it and on about it. But I had, um, I've, we've kept with the driver, so I've got the Stealth 2 driver. Um, we couldn't improve it. The numbers are great. I'm into Stealth HD, Stealth 2 HD in the fairway wood, which I think is 16 degrees. I've got Stealth 2 HD hybrids, which are 20 and 23. I've got the Stealth Irons from 5 to Attack Wedge. And I've got high-low wedges, high-toe wedges, 54 nice. and 58. Nice. An Attack Wedge sounds a bit sinister. Yeah, it's like a 48, isn't it? It's way do you score in, is it? Well, it's, it's to be honest with you, it's one of the most used clubs in my bag, actually. Because mm. uh, I wouldn't use a 54 too much off the deck. It's, you know, it's a bit... It gets a bit bladey with my poor technique, whereas a 48, you can, I can sort of hit it full and hit it about 80, 85, or I can half hit it and hit that sort of little pitch shot in. It's quite a versatile club for me. It's very well right. used. So you're now a tailor-made staffer. Love it. I, I am completely tailor-made throughout the bag, apart from my putter. Next thing you'll be in one of their like, promo videos, won't you? Do you want me tailor-made? Well, yes, but I don't think they want me like as one of their video stars. My swing's not exactly Rory's. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you want to, you, you can shame me for a second though, because I've had these clubs now for three days. I've not hit a shot with them yet. I've not been Have able to not? get. I, I've not been able to get out to the course. I thought you'd run straight to the range. Oh well, uh, you can tell us about it next week. Exactly. Um. So I want to tell you about Tory Pines. It only took us five and a half minutes of you basically gasping to tell us about Tory Pines. <laughs> Tom, have you visited a recent US Open venue? I have, yeah. Home of the Farmers Insurance. Um, so we played quite a bit of golf. I I, um, I told you about the goat last week, didn't I? So we won't, we won't dwell on that. But I am now repping quite a bit of goat merch. I've got a goat hoodie and a goat cap. It's actually quite, I mean, this is obviously for a podcast, it's a bit difficult to explain this, but it's actually quite a stylish piece of kit. It's quite a nice well, logo, isn't it? Simple, but decent. And the kit looks... Well, it is. A, the place is owned by John Ashworth, who knows a little bit about golf clothing. Ah, uh, so it's Link Soul stuff. Yeah. I see. <laughs> um, and I've, I am sort of claiming some conversions to woke golf. So I said last week that I'd, I'd taken... Uh, um, LPJ, Hannah, and uh, and Jack to to there, and they didn't really understand it. Um, but then they were so uh, enamoured by the fact that everywhere I went in my goat merch, that people were sort of like high fiving me from across the room, going, "Oh, you've been a goat! You've been a goat!" It's like a secret code, basically, for golfing acceptability in Southern California. So they went back twice, if you can believe that. They they went back. Yeah, yeah. They got up at they got up at six o'clock in the morning one morning to go and buy some merch. And then they were they went back again at six o'clock in the morning to film a vlog where they played each other over nine holes. <laughs> so they're converted. I'm I'm surprised though that like, given the price that everyone in Southern California hasn't played yet. I mean, didn't you say last week it was like twenty dollars or something? I mean, it's not exactly. It did, did, did forty five thousand rounds last year. 
I think we should try and get Matt Janella on at some point. He's the um, Fireside Pit Collective dude. Who is, he's very heavily involved with it. Um, so, yeah, so that was good. Um, and then I've got quite a funny story about getting absolutely turned over at a private members club, which I can talk to you about. Go ahead. Well, so we arranged quite a bit of golf at the weekend. Um, we played... Uh, Aviara, which is an LPGA venue uh, on Saturday, which Taylor made had arranged for us. And we shot a vlog with Hannah. He was doing, can I, uh, what can I shoot an LPGA venue? And she played pretty well. So it's quite an impressive score, but you'll have to wait for the vlog to see what that was. Um, and then I'd arranged uh, via some members of my golf club to play at uh, the Farms on Sunday, which the Farms is the golf club where um, Phil Mickelson is a member and Xander Schoffler is a member and Annika Sorenston's a member. So they've got like the world's best mixed Ryder Cup team, basically. They've got about 10 touring pros in total. Um, and they've got this daft range, which is like double-ended, one of which has got um, uh, GC2 quads as standard at one end of the range. Um, so you can go and hit balls. <laughs> uh, and just like stupid fast, they're actually power greens, but like, just they were slow on the day we played. I think they were stimping at about eleven, um, and it's in this little tiny parcel of land, so it's all very narrow. Lots of elevation change, so I think it suits quite a lot of the local pros to go and practice there. Um, and it's a sort of daft um, US private club in the in the proper sense. It's got like a gym and basically got a full sort of spa with like steam rooms and stuff after you've played. Anyway, we were guests of. Uh, um, member of old Woodley's friend, basically. Uh, and uh, the terms of these in- invites are never very clear, shall we say. We've been sort of operating on a budget the whole week. Uh, done pretty well. Taylor made to pay for a few dinners. Uh, we'd, uh, we'd stayed in Airbnb, so we'd like been pretty careful. Um, and I'd taken this our, our host some wine and some golf balls, so thank you for hosting us. And then as we were walking out to play, he started mumbling something about a green fee. Uh-oh. So we had to pay the green fee, which I think was probably about 50% of the week budget. Uh, but it was far too late in the day to say, oh, they already paid green fees. Um, so anyway, it was well worth it, and it was a good laugh. Uh, and then we had uh, their sort of traditional club drink is a old-fashioned. Have you ever, not, ever had an old-fashioned? You're going to have to explain to me what that is. Well, I'm not really sure. It's some sort of whiskey, a rye, I think, and then some fruit juice to make it a bit more drinkable. And it is very drinkable. Um, I can tell you that one's definitely enough and three is definitely too many. Did this, Considering you've been like reformed throughout the whole trip as Jack's put you on some sort of no-alcohol, high-fibre diet, I mean, did it hit you like a train? It did a bit, yeah. Uh, so that was good. And then we played at somewhere called The Grand on Monday, which, again, is a sort of private members club. Uh, and Taylor made me back there filming with Brooke Henderson. So that was exciting. And we saw Xander Schoffler's house. So that was good. And that was the one game that we had, uh, just the three of us, all week. And we got a, a four-person buggy. You ever seen one of them? So uh, No, but, it, I mean, it must be like a truck, right? Yeah, it was brilliant. So it's the three of us plus our four caddy. It's like... The fun bus, basically. Uh, and I won the game of split sixes against uh, our would-be tour pro and our resident professionals. That made me feel happy. Um, so it's good. But the highlight was definitely going to Tory on Friday. Um, 
which was I don't know I was describing it to a friend as a life experience because the the whole thing was sort of pretty unique. You've done this kind of thing at Beth Page, haven't you? Not quite the same because our Beth Page trip was it wasn't arranged, but we didn't have to do the car thing, um, which a lot of the locals do. So I mean we we managed to get on Beth Page, but we but it, it was a, it was a booked tea time. I'm not sure whether okay. that's I'm not sure whether that's unusual. I've never actually done this. I mean, I haven't done it at St Andrews either. I mean, you hear about obviously the people with their sleeping bags sort of queuing outside the starter's hut from 1am to try and get a precious tea time. I've always been lucky with that as well. The, the couple of times I've played on the old course, it's been sorted out. So I have never done what you are about to explain. Um, so it's it's a public course, right? So it's owned by San Diego State. Um, mm. I guess it's the, the same as a municipal here. Um, and you can you can book a time. The... the um, website as i said last week it's not the best so it's quite hard to sort of follow um particularly when you're not there aren't you know the sort of differences in lingo um but i think basically you can buy a residence ticket which gets you a cheaper green fee rate every time you play and it also gets you some privileges in terms of how far in advance you can get a book time if you're a non-resident then the price is obviously much higher and i think you have to book either further in advance or the tea times are released to you kind of closer to the time. Anyway, I couldn't get a book time either through lack of understanding of the website, lack of organisation or just lack of availability. But I couldn't couldn't get a book time for any of the days we were there. So I was sort of umming and ahhing about what to do. Um, but we were like 20 minutes away, so it just sort of felt stupid not to go and try. Um, so I went down on Friday morning on my own. The other two went back to TaylorMade for the day. Um and obviously I'm suffering with jet lag, so it's no problem at all to get there um, in plenty of time. But I don't know what you're like. Actually, I do know exactly what you're like. You're just like I am. I um, I just get in such a flipping flap about this sort of stuff. So I was, um, I didn't leave the house really that promptly because I thought, oh, well, I'm not. I'm going to be like first there every time I get there. Um, so I was sort of trying to do a few jobs before I left and then, I rang my wife on the way there and then got lost, went the wrong way down a freeway. So I had to then turn around, which is not an easy thing to do in America. I don't know if you have an experience of going the wrong way in America, but it's, it seems very difficult to then get back on track. In well, it, you just, because you then have to basically drive down the I road for about 20 miles before the next junction comes up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was dark. Um, so that wasn't great. So I ended up getting there about half past four, quarter to five sort of time in the morning it's obviously dark um and i've never been there before and i wouldn't say it's especially well signposted the sort of property is like a sort of big sprawling thing with a lodge next door to it which is like a private hotel that's nothing to do with the golf club um so I obviously went in there and the people were like looking at me like i was an idiot like i said this is not you, you don't come in here sir um and then and then i found a car park with some men sat in cars um which it was also quite peculiar. So it's like men on their own sat in cars in a car park in the dark. And I was like, this is odd. Is this the right place? I'm not sure this is the sort of activity that I've come for. Um, anyway, I went and knocked on one of their windows. Um, very unsure about what I was going to find. Uh, fortunately, I found another golfer who did know what um, we're doing. So the protocol is you basically go and leave your leave a golf club outside the door of, a pro, uh, of the pro shop. Um, and then you're in line, basically, or your club is in line. 
and that's how you know where you are in the queue and then you can go back and sit in your car or what i did was basically pace around in circles wondering whether i was doing the right thing and whether someone was going to pinch my putter or uh, whether i was going to flap about so much that i was going to miss my tea time and um, so i was fourth in this queue um and it was such, it was such a strange experience i can't i can't think of anything else you do where you turn up to do something not sure whether you're going to be able to do it or not so it's I kind like, of like very sort of on edge kind of experience i just like the honor system that seems to be there i mean it would have been so easy wouldn't it for someone who was a bit devious to sort of shift those putters around wouldn't it or shift those golf clubs around but the idea that would they would just stay there untouchable is there's something really there's something really quite sweet about that well, there was what there's. I think there's quite a lot of antsy behaviour from the other people in the queue who were sort of getting out of their cars quite frequently, going back to check. But what you're ostensibly doing is waiting for the waiting for the pros to turn up at six o'clock. Um, and what I'd managed to glean from the information online is that the official book time starts seven, um, and then they will let out one or two four balls onto the north and south course. Torrey Pines has got two courses. Um, before those book times, weather permitting and greenkeepers permitting all the rest of it. The morning I was there, it was foggy. So that was kind of another risk that you weren't going to be able to get out early because the fog might not have lifted. Um, and then one of the guys who's in the car park had said to me, oh, it's a shotgun start in the south this morning. So that's just like a disaster because you can't, if you, you can sort of envisage that throughout the day, people might not turn up. But the shotgun start thing is going to be very binary, like you're on or you're off pretty much, yeah? Um, so then I went to try and find some coffee. And then of course, when I got my coffee, I'd come back and the blooming pro shop had opened, hadn't it? And the queue, the physical queue had formed. So I'm like, oh Christ, the putters are all gone from outside the pro shop. There's a line of like a dozen people. And I chatted to the guy who was behind me in the queue and he was like in the shop about to like sign in. So I said very politely to him, would you mind if I rejoined my place in the queue? I've just been to get a coffee. And he said, yeah, that's fine. And credit to him because another character would have said, no, you've left the line. You missed your chance. Um, so then you basically asked a very difficult question. So the, the two courses, the North and the South, they used them both for the farmers insurance, but the US Open's played on the South. Um, so you have to make a decision whether you're going to go North or South in the queue or the first available on both. So that's quite a tough call when you sort of think, well, I sort of definitely want to play golf. Uh, I definitely want to get on the property. So part of you is thinking I might as well hedge and just say I'll play either. Another big part of you is saying, well, I only really want to play the South because that's the US Open course. So I plumped for the latter and said I just wanted to play the South. Um, and then you So you, let, let, hang on, let me get this right. So you took the ultimate risk, essentially, by trying to get crash a shotgun start where you might either get on or not. Yeah. So the, it, there were three people in front of me in the queue, and I asked the, the um, starter guy. Two of them had said north or south, and one of them had said south only. So I was effectively, I guess, second in the queue because I think times on the north they got some, they did get some people out before seven. Um, and then you're just sort of festering about, watching people pay their green fees and people turning up in their groups of four, um, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Anyway, as it turned out, it wasn't actually that long. So it was about 20 to 7 when um, some Korean chaps turned up and one of their friends was sick, so I got on with them. And then it's all of a sudden sort of panic stations because you then got to get out to your... You got to pay your green fee and then get out to your shotgun hole. 
Um, I might I add that at no point was there any conversation about how much it costs. So it's just like, I'm doing this. Uh, anyway, I think it was something like $250. So that's quite a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah, but not really. I mean, uh, God, people are going to be shouting at me there going, not really. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, it, it seems if you compare that with, you know, on a previous podcast we've done about how the prices of golf have gone up in the UK and Ireland, it seems pretty reasonable. I mean, it's, well, cheap, much- it's, it's cheaper than the old cost, right? Which is two ninety five. Yeah. Um, cheaper than Turnbury. Maybe it was two seven four, and I was interested actually like how that stood up versus um, UK trophy courses. Yeah, so I guess the, uh, the old course is a bit of a case apart, isn't it? Because it's the old course, but it I is. Guess. But I mean, Turnbury is like peak time. I mean, obviously this is peak time, but Turnbury peak time summer is four seven five. You know, peak peak time for somewhere like Birkdale or Lytham is going to be three hundred plus in the summer now. Um, I mean, I I think I mean obviously it's hard to think what the dollar equivalent dollar pound equivalent is, but I think you've stacked up all right there. Well, it's a bit cheaper, isn't it? So two seven four converts to about two hundred fifty quid, I think. Um, it's still a lot of money. I mean, you wouldn't. Of course, it, it is. Week. You wouldn't no, be doing it every week, would you? No, but I mean, I've I've read stories about green fees at Pebble Beach and green fees at, say, Sawgrass, for example, which can reach kind of like high hundreds, can't they? Sort of seven eight hundred dollars, can't they? So I've read so. I mean, but when we played Bethpage, Bethpage was very, very reasonable. I think it was like a. I think we worked out it was a hundred and thirty-five. That right for us to play? Yeah, if you're a New York resident, it's cheapest chips. If you're like an in-state New York resident, it's no money at all. Um, but it was about it was about one hundred and thirty-five for us to pay Bethpage. So you yeah, just have so. this perception, though, don't you, Tom? You just have this perception of even public golf in the United States being unbelievably expensive. So I'm not trying to be coy by going. Two two seventy four, very reasonable. Obviously, it's expensive, but I I thought you'd be shipping five six hundred easy. No, it wasn't that. I mean, the, I think it, like you say, the the residence passes get get people on for like forty dollars or something. They have to pay like an annual fee, which I think is about eighty, and then they can play as many times as they want for forty dollars. Um, I think there's a bit of a black market in residence passes. Um, that they sort of get passed around to people. Um. So they can benefit from that rate, and they check your ID. I think when you go and uh, hand over your card, um, so then you're up, then you're off. So you've sort of parted with your money um, and sort of stomached it. Um, but then you then there's no time basically. So we were off the twelfth, which is literally as far away from the uh, clubhouse as you can get. Um, so we we buggied out. Um, so did we play in a buggy? No, I walked. I walked. Um, no one played in a buggy. So why did we have a buggy? I think two of us walked, and, two, and the other two were in a buggy. So they all sort of squeezed on onto the buggy seat, and I stood on the back. And then we got a lift out to the twelfth tee. And the twelfth is a straight one that points straight at the sea. Um, so it's like cliff top golf, right? Um, so if you've ever been, I don't know if you've ever been to Scarborough South Cliffs, that's sort of what you're dealing with. Yeah, I've been um, to South Cliff. Yeah, um, so it's that sort of downland kind of turf. Like the views are just ridiculous, um, and the the whole place is mown. So there's almost no rough. 
there's quite a lot of trees for a um, sort of caused by the sea, I guess. Um, but there's literally no rough underneath the trees. There's kind of like maybe an inch and a half cut. Um, so you're just not losing your ball at all. So you have got this like incredible sense of freedom because on loads of holes, you can just hit it wherever you want, um, which is exactly my sort of golf. So that's sort of a big tick in the box for me. Um, it's obviously getting huge amounts of traffic, but the, the place was absolutely immaculate. Um, I'm not sure whether that's to do with climate or agronomy or what, but it was just there wasn't a blade of grass out of place. Um, and it's got these incredibly funky greens. Um, and they're just, I'm not sure I've ever quite played on greens like them. So I've been to Pebble Beach, which is a very similar property. The greens there are really small, um, so very few pin positions and not in, not like um, not like big complexes. Torrey Pines is totally different, where you'd almost have like four greens in one. So like big runoffs into one corner, little shelves, big high points, um, like just places where you, you couldn't get above the hole, basically, um, which I guess is sort of what you see in US Opens quite a lot, isn't it? Um, yeah. And it was, the the holes by the sea are just ludicrous. There's a couple of just absolute worldies where there's kind of basically fairway and then sheer cliff drop. Um, and because there's two courses, it's this huge expanse of land. So there's, like, there's these amazing vistas across kind of uh, inlet, fingers of inlets that come in and it's like golf hole, inlet, golf hole, inlet, and then golf course sort of extended out into the distance. So it's, it's a phenomenally... Um, picturesque place to play golf um and totally totally playable for like the layman um as in you can have quite a nice time not losing your ball getting the ball up by the green okay sometimes the green's going to make a bit of a pillock of you but just um just brilliant and the other thing was that just a complete choice of tees so they've got i think four sets of tees and there's no, you can just choose what you do. I think the very backs are sort of by permission only, as in you've got to go and vaguely prove your playing credentials. But other than that, it's up to you what you play off. Um, so we played it at about 6-6, six, six, I think, um, which was plenty. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, and you can also mix and match, right? As in, so if there was a particularly brutal par four into the wind, you can just move over and, and play it from slightly further forward, which I think is is as a guest is pretty good to have that flexibility um but we got it on this like absolutely breathless morning so there was literally no wind whatsoever which i can't imagine is happens very often apparently the wind kicks up often there in the afternoon which is sort of interesting from a uh, a us open point of view much better to have a morning tea time um and we were obviously playing it in spring and they've had a very very wet um very very wet winter and early spring in the states apparently so it was pretty soft um so it was like it was probably as gettable it was as it would ever be, um, but it still had these um, these green complexes, which sort of were a significant defence, I would say. Um, but it was a great experience. I mean, probably the highlight was trying to explain to three Koreans what dogging is. I'm not sure where to carry on from there, but but I do have two further questions. One of which you've actually slightly got into, which was one. What was your group like? Uh, because obviously, you know, it, it's a very similar thing at St Andrews, isn't it? Um, and it was similar for us at Bethpage when Alex Perry and I played Bethpage. We were popped together with um, with two Americans, and it was it was a fantastic experience. Um, they were they were sort of um, good old boy Southerners, and um, they really struggled with Alex' profligate use of swearing, particularly 
particularly one word beginning with C. <laughs> I don't think that I, I don't think they'd ever heard it before in my life. And I just, I, I just, I just remember Alex saying the word that this guy turned around to him with such a shocked expression. Um, me apologising for Alex swearing, and this guy going, "Oh, don't worry, guys, I cuss like a sailor too." <laughs> but, but that's that's my first question. What were the group like? Because obviously, you, you get paired with some complete strangers. That can be a fantastic experience, and that's part of the experience, I think. And and secondly, what did you score? I shot seventy four. Oh, proper! That's proper. I birded all par five, which helps. Uh, and I had a couple of really good long irons into difficult par threes. I think that's probably why I'm being so sort of, uh, what's the word? Uh, I've quite got a bit of a warm glow about it because I did play quite well. That's why we've been um, talking about it for half an hour then. If you well, shot 90, it would have been two minutes. The place sort of suited me because like, it, you, there's so much freedom off the tee. My driving is like night and day. If I get somewhere where you're all sort of claustrophobic, I get very sort of steery. It doesn't help. Hmm. Um, but no, it was good. Um, I also I hit driver three wood into the middle of the last green over that pond if you remember that, uh, and almost made my eagle. Um, but it was it was it was good. So I imagine I was going to say I imagine given this scoring that they were looking at you with some awe as you as you went through because people like no, to see good golf. No, it was a bit of that. They 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 were just they were really decent guys. Like it was I, I absolutely love going to America and talking to. Um, different people about golf because you do get a slightly different perspective. Um, so one of them was a member of a private club. In fact, the same private club we went to on Sunday and the other two um, were not members of clubs and played m- much less frequently um, and kind of had the independent golfer equivalent um, handicap. Um, but they sort of knew their stuff. I mean, like everybody knows who Rick Shields is. That's always amazes me. He's sort of thinking, it's just what an amazing world we live in. So you sort of do these little surveys, don't you? So they all knew Rick. One of them watched Hannah's stuff. Um, one of them read, had read our website. Um, so it's like you kind of get this um, sort of feel for how what the reach of your content. Um, and also getting into sort of big debates about Live and PJ Tour and all the rest of it is kind of that's interesting to get different people's perspectives. Um they're like they're like massive golf fans. Like they've obviously got a PJ Tour event on their doorstep in the Farmers every year, um. So they're sort of talk, talking to me about memories of going to that and telling to me about sort of shots they remember or famous shots from that event, um. And somebody going to the US Open and stuff they'd seen there, um. So it's cool. The Koreans are like I think they're one of the hardest drinking countries in the world. So they they had some quite good bands basically, um. Did you um? Well. Did you feel compelled to offer hospitality afterwards? I always do when I'm in like a new group. I always feel like it's my duty to you know get the beers in afterwards and well, try, we, and de- we, try, try and desperately show everyone that I'm a really good guy. Well, there was a bit of that. There's the um, the, that was the other thing about it is that it was a Friday morning, so they were all going off to work in the afternoon. So there was none of that afterwards. We all it was kind of like a four and a half hour thing. We were done by whatever time that made it and when we all went off to do our do our jobs in the afternoon so that all felt quite normal actually like it wasn't like a huge occasion where we were kind of like soaking it in it was something they were just doing as part of their part of their working week really i don't know what this says about me but i feel like there's a cut-off point when it comes to having a beer in the clubhouse if it's like pre 12 o'clock no once 12 or 1 comes it's acceptable 
Well, no, I think if you've done any sort of activity, it's kind of acceptable to have a beer. Maybe your morning <laughs> run it doesn't count. Uh, anyway, it was really good. It was really good. Um, and we got, we got, I got into um, a long chat with a guy um, about um, WHS um, and and the sort of how that's changed the handicapping system there, and the sort of use of the gin app. And it is just fact, like they were saying, like I said, I oh, what do you think of the new handicap system? And, had, and he was like, what are you talking about, a new handicap system? So they don't regard it as new, really. They sort of regard it as a tweak to the old system. So I think for them, it basically went from 10 scores counting to eight. That's really, I think, the, the major difference. Yeah. I don't yeah. think, I mean, um, I don't know if there's some issues around course rating minus par um and things like that but i mean but you're right i mean this is what I mean, this is kind of like the criticism over here of it isn't it that we've just taken the system from america and we've just planted it in here that's what a lot of people say but i do think it's been slightly easier for them hasn't it and i think in australia as well where they had a sort of similar system um it's been a bit easier for them to get used to yeah and then so i've tracked the, the blokes we played at the farms i got into very sort of People meaningful about it, and they they legitimately submit every card. Um, so we played um, a very friendly game. Um, I played dreadfully, um, and they submitted the cards from that day. Um, and when I say friendly, like we did a kind of we did a blind match play against the other four, and we played a little ma- we played a little four ball in our group. So there were lots of times when you were kind of one handing it or picking it up. Um, yet they they were all submitting their scores in the Gin mm. app afterwards. People think I'm lying when I say this. You know, when I write about this, people think I'm genuinely you know telling pork pies. And it's um, that that's that's the biggest issue with WHS here. I think it's just it's culturally completely different. So when you when you talk about what people do say in America, and you say, well, you know, the majority of people put every scorecard in, they just go, no can't be true, can't be possible because it's completely alien to what we do. So really good, Tom, to hear that from you, you know, that sign of affirmation that, no, no, this actually happens. You know, they put their scores in, expected score, where they basically pick the ball up five feet or whatever it is. It happens, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, And they do use, yeah, they do use the expected score um, thing a lot. and I was chatting to the I was chatting to people yesterday about this. So we and sort of back in England, kind of forty eight hours later, I'm playing in a four ball at um um Frilford Heath on the red course. Also played quite well, thank you for asking. Sixteen pars of birdie, a bogey and a blob. Um and God, it's hard, man. You played there? No. Played it off the white tees, right? Course is pretty soft, greens are rock hard, there's gorse bushes everywhere. Um, it's a very, very intimidating place to play. Anyway, um, so we won, we did all right. Won some Puma shoes or a voucher for some Puma shoes. If you ask me nicely, I might give you my spare voucher. The one guy, the one guy in the world of golf who doesn't possibly need a voucher for shoes to get and shoes. He's done loads of shoe reviews, have you? He's got vouchers to get shoes. Uh, anyway, so we, we, so. We, it was a more formal format than I played in America because it was actually yeah. a competitive round, right? Um, but no one submitted a score. I didn't submit a score. Didn't even think of doing it. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what. I don't really know what you do about that because 
I know we've talked about this before, but it is like it was. This is quite a. This was quite an enlightening thing that kind of like forty eight hours previously on the other side of the world, the same system is being implemented in an entirely different way, right? Um. So we all, yeah, nobody submitted a score. I mean, I don't know whether how much it would have affected people's handicaps, but sort of not the point, is it? Like no one had got their England golf app out. Um. So what do you do about that? The system's designed for like scores to be piled into it all the time yet we're all still submitting our 14 or 15 medal rounds a year aren't we if that yeah i'm just as bad i played on saturday all right we played match play but we played you know it's a social round but it was a pretty competitive one i could have put a card in the conditions were all right i didn't are you yeah. like it's it's so hard to just I, I i've got this in my head and i know james luke england golds had a handicap he listens to our podcast so he's probably just sat there shaking his head at me right now um in 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 disgust and disapproval i'm sorry james i've let you down but um i just in my head i can't i can't separate competitive and social goal for me they're sort of two different things um and as a result when i go so when i go to social golf two and a half years after this system was implemented it doesn't even cross my mind um to put a score in and then about five holes in i said to my mate we could have put a score in here, um, by which point it's too late. But it's just it's just the furthest thing away from what 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 I'm sort of thinking about at that time because my brain is competition golf. I'm not playing in a competition today. It's social golf. We're just having a laugh. Mm. And yet, as as you say, you know, you you, you fly three thousand miles. It's not that far. Six hours on a plane. Twelve hours to twelve, actually, yeah. twelve to California, but six hours, to, you know, five hours to the East Coast, and it's a completely different. They, they would probably look at us with the same sort of disbelief as we look at them. What you never put scores in, you only play. What what are competitions? You know, they, they must just look at us for it really strangely. It's just a, it's just a strange thing that the whole thing's been implemented in in such a different way. Um, mm. Anyway, it was it's it's good to get these people's views. I think. It was really weird going to the sort of the club that Mickelson plays at, and sort of wondering what the view on Mickelson was there. Uh, did he did he have like a trophy locker? Where well, they've, got, they've got they've got a um, they've got a board on the wall where um, it's got pictures of all of the the tour players who are current members. So there's there's like ten or something. I would say I've got. I'll send you the picture. Um, and he's obviously front and centre. Um, they've also got this really cool um replica of every single putter that's won a US Open on the wall. Whoa. Um, yeah, and they've like aged the grips and stuff. Like it's a very sort of cool thing. Although I was thinking it must do Phil Mickelson's head in that he has to walk past that every time he goes in the bar. I mean <laughs> not won a US Open. The only one he hasn't won. Anyway, it won't surprise you that um the they were saying the membership's totally split on him. Just like the wider world, then. Yeah, yeah, I know. Interesting thing, isn't it? Um, anyway, so maybe not submitting a score um, for your handicap every time you play will soon become a rule. That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? I don't think that'll ever happen. Really? I don't. I don't think we'll ever be forced to enter scores. Um, so I was quite interested to get into this idea of rule breaking. We were talking about it yesterday. Um, at this four ball better ball. Um, so on the first green, uh, our highest handicapping group member had a kind of a putt that was about a foot long 
Uh, and one of the lads in the group said, I can just pick that up. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You better haul it out, given that we're, it's a competitive round. So he's not going to miss that. And I was like, well, you say that, but then by the time we get to the 15th, if we're giving one foot on the first, that'll become two feet, that'll become two and a half feet. And this is what happens on these days. So they were all sort of laughing at me, saying I've spent too much time with you and I've become a stickler for the rules. Um, so I thought we could talk about what the sort of most broken rules in golf are, like ones that uh, groups of friends that play together um, break frequently. Um, and because I think that is a thing, isn't it? Like there's, I think there's much more um, formality when you're playing in a drawn comp than when you're playing with your mates where perhaps things are a bit looser. Yeah, well, I mean, if it's if it, my my sort of view on the rules is, if it's social golf, do what you want. I mean, I'm not I'm not a stickler, you know. I mean, I am a stickler for the rules. That is, I'm, I'm very I'm, I'm I put, I take that back. I'm very much a stickler of the rules, but I'm a stickler for the rules in competition. In social golf, when it's just people doing what they want to do, I don't care. Do what you like. Um, but when it when there's a competition, when there's handicaps on the line, when there's trophies, when there's pots, when there's money on the line, then I get I am zero tolerance when it comes to rule breaking. Yeah. Come on then, Steve. Yeah. What have you got for me? What do you reckon the most broken rule in golf is? The most broken rule in golf is the three minute search rule. Yeah. It's the most it's the most broken rule in golf. It really is, isn't it? Um, and it is probably the one rule that I have spent mo the most time sort of trying to explain to people in the clubhouse afterwards, because what you often get, I've had this a number of times at various clubs I've been at since I've, um, um, since I've got into it. And, um, what you find is someone comes in and they complain and they go, this player has taken more than three minutes to search for their ball. And we all, we all know that it happens. It's why the five minute time was cut to three minutes in the first place because people weren't spending five minutes they were spending eight minutes um so it was the reason the rule was cut in the first place but you get people who come in and they say well this guy's um or, or this person has clearly spent more than three minutes searching for their ball you know what are you going to do about it and i say it's and it's what i'm going to say now to everyone who finds themselves in this situation and is complaining about people who spend more than three minutes looking for their ball i say how do you know yeah. So what? What? So let's begin at the beginning with this. So when? When does the three minutes start? The moment the player begins searching for the ball, the player. So you can sort of tactically hang back and let your playing partners have a little bit of a look. Not deliberately. Um, if you're deliberately doing that, you'll get into trouble. But if, for example, um, what if you, you really need to go for a wee? It's not deliberate, is it? Um, so you know, if you're if, if the the best way to explain this is with spectators, right? At a golf tournament. So if a pro hits their ball into a load of cabbage, and the spectators are looking for that ball, which they'll be, which they will do, because that's what spectators do, right? The search has not begun at that point. If the player hangs back deliberately to try and avoid the the start time, the clock being switched on, as it were, then they get into trouble for that. But the, cert, the time only begins when the player or the player's caddy, also in that case as well, begins the search for the ball. What right. I do is when, when, when I'm refereeing, um, I carry a stopwatch. 
Um, so you can do this as well on your on your own rounds of golf. You got a phone, right? I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be the most exact exact thing in the world. But I um I carry a stopwatch, and when the player begins the search, I click the stopwatch, so the timer starts running. Uh, and then when the three minutes is up, um, I'll say, right, the three minutes is over. That's it. If you do that, Tom, if 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 one of you, when a search is happening, sort of looks at their phone and says, right, three minutes starts now then there can be no argument about whether the three minutes has passed or not. It just has. It's a fact, right? The sands mm-hmm. of time have gone. And it, and it removes a lot of problems with this rule because what, I, what what people say is, well, this, this person's had more than three minutes. And I say, how do you know? Oh, well, I just know because it took ages, right? How? Do, but you don't know, do you? It's just, it's it's basically just your, um, your kind of um, suggestion of how much time's passed. As a referee, I'm not going to get involved in that. I'm not going to say, well, absolutely, I'm going to penalise this guy because you said he took more than three minutes without any proof whatsoever. Um, and the other guy, of course, says, well, no, I, I, I didn't have my three. Do you know what I mean? You, you don't get into sort of they said arguments about this, but you just remove all the problems if you if you basically look at your watch and start three or look at your phone and you start a three-minute timer. But that is the most broken rule. Day yeah. by day on the golf course, the three-minute rule. So, I mean, it's not a very English thing to do, though, is it? To say, I am now starting the stopwatch for three minutes. But the, Fine. Do what you like, but then don't come into the clubhouse afterwards and complain that someone's had more than three minutes, because you and don't that's know. that's what we do, Steve. We passive-aggressively moan about things in private. We don't, we don't front stuff up. Hmm. I was having dinner with my I was having dinner with my client on Tuesday night, and he decided his chicken wasn't cooked, so he pushed it all to the side of the plate. And I said, "Do you want me to say anything?" No, 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 no. And then the waiter comes over because everything okay? And he goes, "Yes, absolutely fine." <laughs> we don't, I do we it. Don't, we don't front stuff up, Steve. We're English. I do it in tournaments. I mean, I suppose I'm probably not well liked playing, but you know, I'll say to a I'll say to a guy, "Look, I'm timing this. You've got a minute and a half left." Yeah, I've played with people in. Uh, scratch events where they set an alarm um, and they'll just put a countdown on. But they they normally do it for the for somebody else's search, which is like not ideal, is it? You do need to say you're doing it as well, don't you? Yeah, I think it's better to, to do it, to be upfront about it, because then everyone knows where they stand. And I actually think that if, you, if you're upfront about it, people appreciate it. Because look, yeah. look, we're sort of implying in this three-minute thing, uh, and, I, and if I have done that, I don't mean to do this, that people are deliberately breaking the rule. Um, that's not what I'm saying at all. The vast majority of golfers I play with want to play within the rules and want to play by the rules. They're scrupulously honest. It's just sometimes they don't know what the rule is, one, or two, they don't know the mechanism by which they can play to the rules and putting a stopwatch on or looking at your clock or setting an alarm on your on your phone is just the easiest way of sticking to the three minute rule and it removes the argument of you've had more than three minutes no i haven't i've only had two and a half no you've actually had four now do you know what i mean it just removes it actually removes a bone of a, a bone of contention i think yeah and ev- that's number one everybody looks for their ball for longer than three minutes don't they well not me because i put a clock on yeah, and you could also say, how do you know? I've got no idea, but it does feel like that. <laughs> We've been talking about this for longer than three minutes, that's for sure. Yeah, we have, yeah. Go on, then. That's quite a good one. What else you got for me? Uh, number two, uh, this is a technical one, but it does get you into trouble. And 
um, amateurs do it all the time, but some very, very good golfers do this as well. I've, I've had to stop players from doing this in, in, in some big competitions like North of England Amateur Open Regional Qualifying, for example. If you come to a ball and you don't know it's yours and you need to identify it, you've got to mark it first before you lift it or rotate it. Right. The number of people I see who just stick their hand in the grass and turn the ball around without marking it first, or worse, pick it up. You Honestly, Tom, you would not believe it. Run that by me again, please. So if you need to identify your ball, right, if you're not sure it's yours and you need to identify it, you've got to mark it first before you lift it. If you pick it up or rotate it without doing that, you get a penalty stroke. Got you. And yeah. people do it all the time. They do it really? all the time. Yeah, all the time. Very, very good players don't do this one. And Not and in sure, club really. golf, in club golf, I see it every time I play. And I basically, I, I basically say to people, just mark it first, because obviously, if I see it, and and I see you do it, I'm compelled to give you a penalty for it. There's a there's a ruling. You're basically if you see someone breaching a rule, you have to tell them. You can actually get disqualified for not telling them, um, for acting contrary to the spirit of the game. Can you like being a conspirator? Yeah, yeah it, de- it like depends on the seriousness of the offence and stuff. But but um, if you see someone breaching a rule, or you, you know if you've seen someone who's breached a rule, you have to tell them. You can't just ignore it. Um, and and this one I see, this one I see identifying your ball. I see it all the time, and it's it's a it, it feels like a pointless thing, right? I understand why people don't understand it because, well, I'm just identifying my ball. Why do I need to mark the position? I'm going to put it back where it is anyway. But but it's it's about um, it's about basically marking it before you lift it. And what about people who? Um... Uh, identify their ball to gain a, a more advantageous lie when they put it back. Do you think that's the thing that happens? I don't see that as much. I'm sure there are people who might do that. I, very I don't hard. want to cast it's aspersions. Very, it's very hard when you've done it and then to put it back in like the horrible lie that it was in before. Much much nicer to put it just near. Do you have to put are it you, back in the exact spot? Yeah. Are you admitting something there? Yeah. Yes, yeah, because so, you, you've got you've got to re- you, you've got to replace it on its original spot. In this in the case that I'm talking about here, you have to replace it on its original spot. I'm talking about like if your ball's like in a hole and you have to like mark it to see if it's actually yours, and then when you yeah. put it back, it might not quite be as much of a hole as it was previously. Uh, uh, must uh, do, that. do you want to confess something to me here, Tom? No, I'm. I'm, I'm uh, what's the what's the what's the expression you use when you ask him for a friend? Hmm. <laughs> mm. Right. Okay. That sounds. I don't think. I. I don't. I think that sounds a bit silly because it's pretty obvious you have to mark your ball in it. You would think so, wouldn't you? But that I. I. I probably deal with as many of those as I do the three-minute rule. Did you not tell me the other day that you don't have to mark your ball for winter rules? For preferred lies relief, it, yeah. Yeah, it depends. It, for, for for winter rules. If you actually look at the ruling, it doesn't talk about replacing the ball on the spot. Right. Um, so you, you're basically you're marking a ball. Normally, I'm talking off the top of my head here, but generally speaking, when you're replacing a ball on the spot, um, as you are when you're lifting it to identify it, then you have to mark the position of the ball first. With right. preferred lie relief, um, you're not 
replacing the ball on its original spot you're placing the ball on a spot um, so so it's like so it's slightly different what i would say in that case though and i did say this in the piece that i wrote about it is i would mark the position of the ball because you've because you've got such a small place with which to place it god that god i really didn't describe that very well at all because you've only got six inches um, it'd be very easy to get that one wrong. And then if you've got a playing partner who says, well, you didn't, you didn't place that within six inches, then you've got a problem, basically, if you haven't marked the position of the ball first. So I would say mark the position of the ball in preferred lies relief. But in strictly speaking in the rules, the rule does not say that you have to mark the position of the ball. You're just encouraged to do so. Now, that's different to lift, clean and place. Um, which is E2, model local rule E2, which is another variation of this that you often see that's been used in wet conditions. In that case, because you're replacing the ball on its original spot, you've got to mark it. And the local rule actually says, mark the position of the ball. Yeah, so I think that is um, that is what I'm driving at with the with the identifying your ball and the rough um, rules, that they're basically the same thing, right? You, you're marking your ball and picking it up. And under one instance, you don't have to put it back in the correct spot, in this exact spot. And in one instance, you do. Like, it's, that is a quite strange yeah, but, thing. But, so you've just got to remember it as, hopefully I'm going to explain this well. Normally, I'd sort of hide in my rule book and read you the rule book term, which I don't I don't have it to me. But the difference between the two is you've when you're identifying the ball, you've got to put it back on its original spot. Yeah. So that's the difference. Whereas with the winter rules, you're not having to put the ball back on its original spot. You're placing the ball in a six-inch radius. Yeah. Or, or a one-club radius, depending on what the local rule is. But for handicap purposes, it's six inches. So do you, do you see why it's different? Yeah, I do. I do see why it's different. I'm um, just saying it's. I, I can see how that would be open to some interpretation. Yeah. Um, mm. Okay, that's a good one. Go on then. And your third one? Provisional balls. People what? not saying pro- pro- people not saying provisional ball. Yeah, so I've got a bit of problem with this. I don't really see why you have to do that. Like it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that you're you're hitting one in case you can't find your first one. Like why else would you be hitting another one? Is it if you want to play provisional, just say provisional. It's very, very straightforward. Yeah, that's all you have to do. So let's do this backwards then, because it's the other bit that I never can quite get my head around. So you can't declare a ball lost, can you? No. It has to be lost. Yeah, so a ball is only lost if it's not found within three minutes of searching for it. So if I if I hit one into the left rough on the first, and then I um, declare I'm hitting a provisional, yep. so I've done that bit properly, and then I walk up and I find my first ball, but yep. I think it's lying so badly and it's behind so many bushes that I'll be actually better off playing my provisional. I can't do that. No. No, you've found your original ball. And if you've identified it, then that's a ball in play. Now you could decide to take stroke and distance relief and go back and play it again. You could take back on the line relief if you if it's for an unplayable ball. You could take lateral relief for an unplayable ball, but you can't just go, yeah, I don't like that. I like my provisional. So that's that's so. If I've hit my provisional and then I've just decided when I've been walking up, so I've looked where my ball's gone, and I've just thought actually, like let's say it's a drivable par four, and I've hit my provisional on the green, so I'm on the green in three, and I've got I'm going to make five at worst, um, 
and my first ball is like literally like 60 yards in some trees, can I not go and look for it? Or can I like stand at the side of the trees having the, the worst three minute search ever and then declare it lost? Like what's, what's the latitude there? So you, you don't have to look for it. Um, you can, you can leave it if you want. Um, but you can't stop other people going to look for it. Yeah. So if I'm playing you in stroke play and we're, let's say we're drawn together in the last group of the club championships um, and it's close and you've hit your ball in the rubbish and you don't fancy looking for it, I can go and look for it, can I? And find you and say, hey, Steve, it's here 60 yards in the trees. Yeah, you can. And then it becomes like in that case where I know you're going to do that, it becomes a little bit of a race. Um, to where I then try and get to my provisional ball as quickly as possible and then make sure I get to a point where it's closer to the hole than where I think that the original is and then that becomes the ball in play. Stop, 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 stop. So in my drivable par, for example, because I think it's a good one, let's suppose they were playing the second all Woodley and you've hit your first 60 yards into the trees on the right and you've driven the green with your second, right? Yeah. And I think, well, there's no way I'm getting away with that because I think he might make six from the trees, whereas he's definitely going to make four or five from his provisional. And I I go and find your provisional, which is going to be further back. Sorry, I go and find your first one, which is going to be further back than your provisional because your second one's on the green. Yeah. So what's there? Is, is your provisional automatically in play? No. You've got right. to, you've basically got to go up and you've got to basically go up and hit your provisional. It gets complicated. Like the, the, the easiest, the easiest way of explaining this, it used to be in the old clarifications. I'm not sure if it's still there now is it's a, there's a par three. It's a short par three um, player hits their ball miles, miles wide hits their second one to within a foot. Right. It's a match play game. Opponent says, well, I quite fancy finding that original ball. What happens then is that the player has to the, the player who wants their provisional to be in play has to go up to the provisional, put it in the hole, and pick it up out of the hole before the original ball is found. If the original ball is found at any point before then, then it becomes the ball in play. Right. See, that is interesting, isn't it? You could see. I mean, I, I, have you got any examples of where this has actually happened, like in real life? No. Because. The closest one I can think of, which I think I might have told you about before, was actually at Strensel, um, playing the the par three that you talked about earlier is the seventh, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, so the eighth is your straight one that kind of crosses over the seventh, yeah. So I was playing a scratch thing at Strensel. Um, I was playing with this lad from Bradford whose dad always used to come around with him. Uh, and he had a really good drive at the middle of that eighth hole. And then he had a terrible second, which finished in the dike in some bushes to the back right of the green. And then he is provisional stiff. And his dad went to look for the first ball. And the lad was going, don't look for it, don't look for it, don't want to find it, don't want to find it. And then his dad found it like, on a downslope in a ditch in a bush. Yeah, sorry, son. Yeah, but um, the, lad, the lad was absolutely livid because he was making a tap in five. Uh, and then he was like hacking around in the bushes. Was there a very recent example on tour with Matt Fitzpatrick and a spectator? Oh, um, yeah. where, where Fitzpatrick hit like completely off the planet and hit a lovely provisional and the spectator went and found his original ball. And I think he, I, I don't know the exact outcome of it because I, I didn't see it at the time, but I think ended up taking, having to take unplayable ball relief and then hit it. And then he was still in a load of trouble or, and he, he would definitely, I think rather have played the provisional, but a very helpful spectator went and 
found it for him. I, I, I've been told as a referee, a mentor of mine has taught me in this situation, don't start the search for a player's ball until they indicate to you that they want to find it. Yeah. I mean, it definitely caused, lost me a hole in my match play match of the week. I did explain this where uh, my opponent topped his tee shot into some uh, bushes and then it hit his provisional up the fairway and then said, actually, I'm not going to look for the first one. But I could have gone and looked for it, couldn't I? Yeah. Yeah. But provisional balls, Tom, I mean, just going back, uh, provisional balls, just say provisional. It's it's not a magic word. Um don't say I'm going to reload or I'm going to play another. That is not you saying that you're putting a provisional into play. That's you, in fact, playing again under penalty of stroke and distance. It gets a little bit complicated. There are variations of this that are acceptable under the rules. So saying I'm going to play another just in case is acceptable. That is basically declaring a provisional ball. But I just think when if, if, if your aim is to play a provisional ball, why take the risk? It's so easy to get it right. Just say provisional tailor-made three or whatever yeah yeah right that was good i'm interested in that I'd like to hear from people about uh, what they think the most broken rules in golf are when i tried this as a debate yesterday with my playing partners they were well into it they think uh, they think how people drop the ball is uh, a good one well well do you want to get into that well, did I just say that they were like saying that they think the knee high drop thing that people just sort of bend down and then they drop from the knee high from the the height of their bent knee, right, as opposed to mm-hmm. their actual knee. So, so the actual rule says that the ball has to be dropped from knee height. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't say that you have to be at knee height when you drop it. I mean, you what? can lie flat. You you can lie flat on your back and drop it if you want, as long as it's from knee height. Yeah, but I think what they were saying is that people bend, so their knee is lower. Yeah, there's a little diagram in the rule if you if you if you um, have a look, which actually has which actually shows someone kneeling down, like like kneeling down and dropping from their knee, kneeling down, which isn't at knee height, and there's a big cross that says no. Yeah, do you not think so, the most broken rule in golf is that thing about teeing off before your tee time? Um, Probably, yeah. There's, I mean, definitely, but yeah, definitely. But I, I've given up with that one. Um, I've, I, I, I keep to it myself. I find myself often a source of ridicule because I'll look at like a completely empty first hole, and we'll be four minutes before the tee time, and two people I've never played with before will be going, "Well, we're just getting off now," and I basically say, "Go on your tee time." Rules is rules, son. Rules it's is exactly- rules. It's exactly what I say, but trying to explain this to someone who can see nobody on the first hole and just basically is like, why are you being a dick? Um, it's quite hard. Um, and and a, a refereeing friend of mine um, said to me that you've just got to like, you've you've just got to sort of be half blind when you're playing in club events because otherwise you'd spend all of your time picking people up about rules that you see being broken and no one will want to play with you. Mm. Um, and and there is there is a club golf there is something to that. You know people aren't cheating as I said earlier on, but there's but they they obviously don't know the rules as well as I do. Right, that's really good. I mean, I'm glad I got my Tory Pines anecdote off my chest. To be honest with you, that was the main purpose of today's podcast. 
well, the innumerable WhatsApps I've had over the last few days telling me that you wanted to talk about Tory Pines suggested I should just shut up and let you talk about Tory Pines. Have you seen this um, uh, tweet that Beth Ann Nichols has done about um, an 18-year-old girl shooting 70 in US Open local qualifying? I think this tweet has been delivered while we've been recording, hasn't it? It has, yeah. But we should definitely talk about that at some point, shouldn't we, on the topic of... Uh, these things should just be for the best golfers, regardless of gender, because that is a pretty cool thing, isn't it? Don't think she qualified, but she nearly did. There's a isn't there an odd situation where I'm sure I looked at this, where um, as a woman you can actually enter open regional qualifying, but you basically had to be one of the top five players in the world to do so. So to yeah, tee yeah, it up, so at a all, major winner or something, yeah. So to tee it up at Old Woodley in the open, it like wasn't beyond the realms of probability, but you basically had to be like Brooke Henderson to do it. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, right, brilliant. I will uh, see you next week. I'll have I'll have less interesting anecdotes next week. So I'm going to Cumbria with the kids this weekend. No, well, I look forward to hearing tales of sheep. <laughs> Bye. Cheers, Tom.